And good morning. It's Thursday, the 2nd of June, 8 a.m., which means it's the Art of Service live streaming on LinkedIn and Facebook and wherever else in the world. And this week, I am super excited and, and actually quite happy to be able to sit down with Simon David Thompson, because that's how he um, <laughs> recognizes himself on LinkedIn, probably because there are multiple Simon Thompsons on LinkedIn, but this is Simon David Thompson. And Simon and I go, um, well, way back, probably four or five years now, um, okay. where I met Simon when I was coaching his accountability group for the Accelerator program, but we'll definitely talk about that. So, Simon, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thanks very much for having me, Ivanka. I'm really looking forward to this. It should be uh, a great chat. <laughs> I'm, I'm counting on it. I'm counting. <laughs> I have so I hope, many. I can live up with, hope I can live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you should be fine. You should be fine. Hey, um, let me just turn off my notifications first because we get beep, 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 beeps. Um, which I don't like. Um, the internet, that's where I looked you up. Your description on LinkedIn is um, quite full on. Like you have done a lot. And <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's all good stuff. So your description, how you introduce yourself on LinkedIn is you said that you are a commercial contract strategist. And I know from history, like when people say, oh, you're in procurement, you go like, no, 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 no. I am a contracts strategist. You're a speaker. You're an international speaker. Uh, you're a data scientist founder and previously a rocket scientist. And I went like, that's <laughs> cool. I remember that and I forgot about it. And then I went like, that's true. You're, you have a bachelor in space engineering, correct? Yeah, uh, it's mechanical and space engineering, but yes. Yeah. So yes. Similar to mechanical engineering, but sort of. Um, focused on space. Yeah. yeah. So, how does a rocket scientist turn into a procurement and contract strategist? Tell me more. Wow. How did that happen? That is, uh, so, we've only got an hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess the very short version of it is was that um, when I was I was going through university and wanted to do, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I always my mum always found me unpicking. You know, taking apart mowers and taking apart pretty much anything. I wasn't so good at putting them back together. I always had the leftover screws and bolts and it still works, but probably didn't work for too much longer. And um, so really always loved finding out how things worked. And um, so I went to, went off to university. I went, oh, okay, we'll do engineering. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, started off in you know, basic engineering. You just do all different types. I was never good at chemistry. Um, so that was ruled that one out. Um, but really gravitated to um, to mechanical, and then then they sort of back then, geez, it was twenty five years ago, I think, something like that. Now it was um, that everyone was talking about oh space, this would be really fun, and you know we're talking about putting a, a space station up in North Queensland, or oh this would be great. So I sort of gravitated towards that, and through I think at that same time it was the first year that they could when you're studying, you could actually do a, both a business degree as well. Mm. So I did um, the first sort of business and engineering degree combined. Uh, it was a, for those who've done engineering degree, it's a fair workload and then to add business on top of that. So within sort of four years, did it over five years. Um, so I always had a passion of like, well, understanding not how things work from a mechanical perspective as well, but also how things work in a business. 
side of things. And I always had a passion for really exploring things. And so I was very privileged and lucky to travel a lot when I was younger with my parents and always wanted to continue that. So through my university years, I wanted to go do some industrial experience, um, practical experience overseas. I rode away to many different places around the world and finally got into a place in Sweden. Um, everyone would have heard of Volvo. Probably what everyone didn't know was Volvo actually makes a lot of aerospace components as well. So all, the, all your um, commercial airlines you fly on all the day, um, some of the parts go into the jet engine actually made by Volvo yeah. you know, over in a little town in Sweden. So yeah. I work, did some work experience over there. Can I just interject you there? Because you've got me a little bit worried about this story because you, you worked at the space department yes. of Volvo. But as a child, you were very good at taking things apart, not so good at putting things together because <laughs> you had leftover bits. Yes. <laughs> Should I be worried about all the spacecraft that have Volvo elements in them? No, no, definitely not at all. So uh, the good thing about, the good about engineering is you do a lot of that sort of stuff before it actually goes into things. And so you, you only put the things that once have been perfected. So a lot of testing and things happen mm. uh, when you pull it apart, run it in the simulated area. And then sort of um, once it's all working, then you put it back. And so that, that real philosophy of testing things outside of um, the working environment so that you know, people don't fall out of the sky. Um, Volvo also did jet en- uh, rocket engines, so um, European Space Agency, all the satellites and stuff for them uh, were uh, powered by Volvo rocket engines and also some military um, missiles and things like that but um that principle of taking things in and testing them perfecting them in a, in a sort of a quarantine environment then sort of putting it in um is a philosophy that i've sort of taken from from back in the engineering days now into sort of mm. business so the short version shorter version now of um of that story how i ended up in uh, sort of doing contract contracts and, and procurement was that um I worked in the engineering space, but after a while, it wasn't quite for me. If things didn't happen very fast. So in aerospace, things take about 10 years. So yeah. from, and I wanted something to really to innovate a lot faster than that. So um, I came back to Australia, finished off um, my engineering degree, then actually worked for a software company um, uh, for a year or so to really go, okay, cool. How do we increase that um that innovation and we could really um, do a lot of interesting things. So I did that for a little bit, then sort of bounced around for a couple of other different jobs, some into some um, sort of supply chain um, and then sort of into consulting. And then one of my first jobs was consulting and renegotiating a, it was about a $100 million um, aircraft um, leasing arrangement. And from there it was like, oh, we can actually take those engineering principles and apply it. Yeah. very well into a um, procurement perspective. So it's really reverse engineering what people need and finding the mismatch or that waste between mm-hmm. what they actually need and what's actually been purchased. And that waste mm-hmm. is actually, you can, um, by working together with the supplier or actually with the, the market, actually reduce a whole lot of cost and actually improve the overall outcome. And been doing that ever since now for about, well, she's must be about 15 years. Yeah. Wow, that's a that's a great journey, and like yeah. oh, you already touched on the fact that your engineering background, you've taken those learnings into 
procurement consultancy and to really identify the the components of what makes a good service or what makes a good product. And so you know what the components are that need to be managed and maintained. So if you take that learning into a risk management mindset, because the reason why I'm asking that is like, I still have this rocket ship in the back of my head. Like there must be so much testing going on and the, the risk profile of an organization like that must be so tight. Like it's like, there's no room for error. Mm. You currently do a lot of work in healthcare, mining. Um, I assume that there's a similar focus on compliance and, and risk management and risk mitigation. How do you how do you feel about that in relation to what you've learned from your engineering background? Um, yeah, I think it's it's a really strong parallel because, as you said, in in aerospace, it's risk mitigation, and it's it's you need to make sure that things work, and it's it's about the um, in aerospace, it's about what's the, the lifespan and the known lifespan. So things will always deteriorate over time. Uh, that's the fundamental principle of everything work. Things will always break. Um, so how do we know for sure when it's going to break um, so that we can make sure that we're, it's not going to, to break? And also in, in space, they talk a lot about redundancy. If you send someone to the, yeah. um, to the moon, then your risk mitigation is having multiple systems yeah. that effectively yeah, You don't want to have a single point of failure. Ex exactly. No. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so therefore in... Yeah, we do a lot of work in the mining space at the moment. So if you're if you're setting up a, a contract with a supplier, so you're outsourcing a lot of a lot of your mining operations to to someone else, you want to make sure that's actually going to work. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of cases where you know, they'll put in um, uh, put in an arrangement and think you know for all intents and purposes and and all the goodwill that it's it's going to work. But these are long term relationships, so it's going to be at least five plus years. Um, but as we know, things always deteriorate. Um, and over time, much like something's mechanical, um, these relationships will deteriorate over time as well. So it's actually what we take is that same philosophy from the mining, uh, from the aerospace of going, well, how do we quarantine it into an area where the, the cost of failure is very minimal? But we can also simulate things instead of looking at things over um, a huge point in time. In the aerospace, what we do is go, well, we'll take... Um, you can simulate something that is going to take 20 years. And probably everyone remembers you know, the most simplest example is if you go to an Ikea, Ikea um, and look at, they've got those little devices where they're pushing the chair back and forward mm -hmm. with a little piston. And what they're just replicating is when are these things going to break? Yeah. Um, and so they do that a lot of in the aerospace, but you can also do that from a commercial perspective as well. Look at these models and simulate how, when are they going to deteriorate and break and how are they going to break? So then yeah. you can identify, well, how can we fix them? So that's how they manage that risk so that you don't, uh, from a commercial perspective, in like a couple of years, end up in court with your suppliers because yeah. things aren't working. Yeah. So Brings me back to my old um, software testing days of doing stress testing and, you know, volume testing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And how do you... And then, testing. Yeah. And software is a great way because you can do that in such a, a massive scale and... Lots of different scenarios and lots of different ways for those turbine engines that go into mm. um, aircraft. You would actually run simulations um, at Volvo of different sort of flight paths. 
yeah. or, or flights uh, things and they'd also do some military jet ones which had different I would put different stress and strains on those components so you yeah. can run those different simulations similar to in, in the commercial world as well yeah so in your professional career I mean you started at Volvo um, Aerospace and then you worked for a, a, a large mining company or a resource company you've negotiated major contracts you've you you were on on a really interesting um, professional career path yet you chose to become an entrepreneur what 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 made you change what made you think about hey I want to do my own business I have value to add what what happened um interesting and sort of think about the word you use in choice in some aspects, I don't think, you know, I think if you ask my mother, she goes, well, you're never going to work for someone for very long. It wasn't a choice. Um, I think it's probably a predisposition to, to do it. Um, so I think for me, it was seeing an opportunity, being able to run at that opportunity and having that flexibility to, to do it. And I've always found as well that um, you know, the fastest way to learn is to make mistakes. Mm. It really comes really interesting from a... <laughs> Person from working in, you know, in, in aerospace that um, that you know everyone thinks that, and and, and we're so programmed in business these days to go don't fail don't fail don't fail don't fail mm. but if you look at any way of the education um, process these days it's the fastest way to learn anything is to actually learn from mistakes preferably some other people's mistakes but also you know learn from your own mistakes so having the freedom to make those mistakes um, and you know, it really invest my own money and capital to, to um, um, find if those mistakes are going to work was I found was the, I looked at being, having my own business as the way to really um, learn as quickly as I could um, right. and, and accelerate that time from working in consulting. It was, it was, we had a sort of saying in consulting, was that uh, one year in consulting was like five or six years working in business just because you had so much exposure to so many different things. I think yeah. entrepreneurial, uh, being an entrepreneur, it's like one year in business, it's like 10 years or something working for another business because yeah. there's so many different components that you're constantly challenged with. And, um, and I just love that variety and, and that, that, that challenge there. Mm. Um, and then also that ability to work with multiple um, people and help multiple people at, at the same time as well it was really yeah. of interest yeah so it's 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 really for you to um to be able to one learn a lot add a lot of value and to speed up um your own uh, experience um collection and experience sharing is that what i'm hearing yeah ab absolutely and then through that journey i found as well that we can learn those things it's, then there's passing those learnings on to others yeah. that's probably why that i've got a yeah. consulting business rather than a a product based you know, yeah. providing a, a widget or something like that um was that really love sharing those that knowledge that we've acquired um through those failures or through working with or seeing other people's failures in, in other areas and going oh okay now sort of reverse engineering that and going here's a whole lot of value that we can provide to people and it's really right. that um one thing we love is that that aha moment. If our client have those ah and something just it's that light bulb moment in the head. Yeah. 
that's that's where we really that's that's the thing we look for and, and love in our with our clients. Yep. I go, oh, okay, I can do this. It's a simpler way of doing this, and it's gonna achieve the outcome that I really want. It's gonna be easier, shorter time frame, and so forth. Yeah. So let's talk business um, and your biggest opportunity for learning. Because you said, rather than saying, what was your biggest failure? So what has been your <laughs> biggest <laughs> opportunity for learning in in your business? And, and how would you communicate that to other people that are either running their own business or are thinking about starting their own business? I think the biggest learning that I have is, um, number one, not everyone thinks like an engineer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a very, and it's from an engineer and from a logical perspective, it is hard to sometimes get out of that and see that people aren't buying from a logical perspective. They're buying from maybe an emotional perspective. Mm. Um, and then number two, which sort of relates into that is that um, we sell a lot from business to business. What would sell to a owner of a business um, where it's their money and, and their return um, is not always what's going to sell to middle management. Middle management has a, a different, they've got their own set of priorities. So the yeah. biggest learning is, is really doubling down on um, asking that question with whoever we're serving and whoever providing assistance to them is really going, well, what's in it for them? Yeah. How is this going to help them? So if, you know, if we save them a whole lot of money, is that really going to, is that actually one be beneficial for the organisation? Is it actually beneficial for them and their career? Is it going to make them look better um, and and do the work? They've engaged us, so we want to make them um, sort of the hero. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one, and it's an important one because what's good for the business may not necessarily good for the decision maker that you're talking to. So yes. it's it's so how did you learn to communicate that and how did you learn to tap into um, almost an emotional um, connection? Because as you say, as an engineer, and I'm painting broad brush strokes here, but as an engineer, <laughs> um, the logic and the head and it's binary and it's ones and zeros. It's it's it how did you learn to let go of the logic? while yeah. holding on to the logic to tap into the emotion of the buyer? Um, I think I just probably took an engineering perspective on it <laughs> and looked at it from um, there's a uh, sort of subset of economics called behavioral economics. So what's really driving their behavior? So almost reverse, like we do a heavy thing I do, like just reverse engineer it. If you don't understand it, reverse, reverse engineer it and try to understand it. So, um, and what are the components of it and sort of really strip it back down and sort of then build it back up. Um, so that sort of, it's probably a long, long way around mm-hmm. doing it rather than the short version. But for me, it, it made sense that then I could go, okay, they're doing this because of this. They have an internal belief. And it's been a lot of books, um, a lot of listening to, to people um, talk, um, a lot of, trial and error with okay here's a proposal is this going to work um and and understand why some of them didn't hit the mark while others just really really hit the mark Hmm. um so i think it's probably that that's been you know i guess the 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 way that i've sort of looked at it yeah yeah so it's it's really um pulling apart and doing a debrief on every every process you went through 
to figure out, okay, what worked, what didn't work, and then tweak, constantly tweaking, not thinking that the first process or the first communication or the first product will be perfect, but constant retweaking and and rebuilding. Yeah, and a lot of, and it probably comes back to some of the engineering things is, is engineering is a lot about continuous improvement. Mm. So how do we continuously improve, but also how do we make that cycle as fast as possible? Yeah. Um, so that if we don't understand it, put something out there, it may not be perfect, but obviously manage the risk associated with it. So big fit, big, uh, uh, big, um, uh, what's the word for it? Um, I really like the saying, you know, fail, fail fast, fail often, mm. fail cheap. Yeah. Um, because you'll learn a lot that way. So by taking some of those learnings, and it's also not just the learnings that have just recently happened, but reflecting back on things that have happened you know, 10, 20 years ago. Mm. Oh, okay. Now I understand why that person 10 years ago reacted like this to that in a positive or a negative way, um, while someone else has acted in a different other, in, in another way. And yeah. Um, yeah, so it's probably then swaying a little bit more back to from a more compassionate side of the human and understanding the human than you know, knowing that just because uh, I think there's a really good saying um, that I always come back to and it's, it's uh, culture eats uh, strategy for breakfast. Mm. And no matter how good the logic and the strategy is, if you don't get the people side of things right, yeah. it's never going to work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and finding the right people is such an important skill to have as a as a business owner. Um, so speaking of that, and and we'll come we'll come back to um, the the people thing because I, I want to do a little bit of a deeper dive in that. But I was I was thinking about the questions to ask and um, having the right people and having the right culture, and go back to your clients because a lot of your clients have um they're large organizations they are they have a culture of performance but maybe not so much a culture of taking risk or accepting failure um how do you identify where you can add the biggest value to your clients what questions do you ask? Hmm, that's a really, really good one. Um, I think their ability to change, mm-hmm. if they're, if they're, and how focused they are on actually um, meeting some objectives. Because um, if, if they're interested in the status quo, um, then we really won't be able to help them too much. So that's that's probably the. Um, the first one. So how invested are they actually making? Yeah, are they in actually making a change? Um, then as well from that is probably um, what's, yeah, and it's probably sort of looking like, yeah, for us, it's almost fitting, finding the right fit for our, our, for us with our clients as well. Because some clients will, you know, you can, you know, they might be really invested to make a change, but the way they want to execute that change is not going to be either sustainable um, or it's probably going to have some negative consequences to not just um, the people working within that organisation, but also um, some other people supporting that organisation, be it you know, the external suppliers. Yeah. So 
um, for us, it's sort of, I find it's um, that alignment of values is really, uh, really helps. So determine, okay, do they, are they thinking the same? Mm. Um, so a lot of our um, sort of content we're putting out on LinkedIn and so forth these days now isn't so much about marketing, it's, it's about just explaining this is the way that we think about things mm. and this is the way that we um, we believe things work and this is where we believe that we um, how to solve some of these problems and that'll attract some people who think the same so therefore we'll initially well from the get-go I should say that we go okay we're on the same path to actually work and add the most value together because if we um, like another learning from uh, from life is that um, and maybe it's again the engineering point of view was that you know I've always made decisions based on data. Collect as much data as you can, then you go, okay, see what's happening, and then make an informed decision based on that. There's a lot of lot of people out there that that's not the way that they make decisions, mm. uh, nor do they want to. Um, so if if they're not interested in that, then we're probably not going to be the right fit for them. Mm. Um, so so what, if, so what is the risk if people? are only interested in making non-data-driven decisions. What is the risk that you see in the industry that you work with? Uh, I'm pretty biased, but, um, but because we think that, you know, if you're not making decisions based on, on numbers, and this is, doesn't even have to be based on, you know, you know mining or heavy or resources industry, uh, but even just running a business, um, not having an idea on, on what the numbers are telling you uh, means that you can make some, some pretty poor decisions that are really hard to get out of mm. um, or really expensive to get out of later on um, just because you go, okay, cool, we'll make this. And we, I think I've got enough information about it, so therefore we'll make that decision. And that's yeah, similar to um, why you know, aerospace, they spend so much time investing in that because if you don't understand it properly, then you'll have things that blow up or crack, wings fall off airplanes, which they yeah. have done many years ago. Um, we all learn about it in, in engineering school. Um, so informed decisions based on data, I think mm. the, you know, it's, a really, it's a really important um, concept. I've, I've found it, it served me well. I can only talk about my experience. Um, it served me very well. And in the, in the applications we've done is you can easily look through some of this data and go, oh, that's where the problem is. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the, one of the most simplest comp, uh, concepts they t teach at business school is about Pareto, so the eighty twenty rule. Mm. So eighty percent of the work is going to be generated by twenty percent of the um, so the activities. As a simple example, so in our world um, dealing with um, suppliers, if you you know we did a lot of work in, in procurement, you run through all the so where's where's all the spend coming from? You go well, eighty percent coming from just a handful of of suppliers. So yeah. instead of managing all this work. Um, trying to manage all these other the low level suppliers, you can manage the spend around some of the big suppliers. Yeah. Um, so it allows you to quickly get into what uh, identify the problem really quickly and solve it, and know that you actually are solving the problem rather than going, "Oh, we think we're doing something right, but not actually know." Yeah, we just throw stuff against the wall and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I tried that too, but then you but then measure which which things actually. Yeah. Fit. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then understand why. <laughs> yeah, that's the hard part, isn't it? 
So your love for data has become really, really clear in the last few years, at least to me. Um, you know, you, you've written a number of love letters to data in the form of your <laughs> software and your SaaS solutions that you've, um, you've created in the last, uh, last few years, um, which have been um, so inspirational to watch from the sideline. Because it's, it's, to me, the way I look at it, it, it's so clear that you are so driven by value to the customers about giving insight into data and analyzing and, and simplifying the data so that they can make executive decisions on it. Now, what strive are people in when they start looking for that kind of solution? What is the risk, the most common risk that you see out there, whether it's a compliance breach or compliance risk, or it's a, what kind of risk have people identified before they start talking to you about your data analysis tools? Sort of the risk that, what's the problem with inside their business? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the biggest risk is for them repeating um, the same, same problem. Hmm. That's, that's by far, as I found the biggest risk. So um, for some of our mining clients, it's ending up in court with one of their major contractors again because things aren't things aren't working. So they have a, a the contract isn't working. People aren't making money. They're not hitting production targets and so forth. And so they go, okay, well, and that that ends up costing them a, a huge amount, like tens, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, so uh, so that's um, that's. So other, that one, we've done some work with um, some insurance companies, and again, it's you know, well, how do we, how do we know what we need to, what levers can we pull? I think mm. that's the risk is that they're sitting there in front of this. I've, I've, I visualise these bunch of old levers, um, and they're sitting there going, uh, I'm moving these things, and something's happening, you know, four steps away or in another room, and and I have no idea what's actually happening there, and things have gone bad previously so that they and so overarching it's i don't want to make the same mistake there but i i don't want to sort of um i want to know what's actually happening with these levers so it's, from a very simple mistake uh simple example is imagine riding a bicycle and i'm sure everyone's probably done it that you've when you're younger you accidentally hit the front brake really too hard and you flipped over the front um from from a bike's perspective, it's really easy because you can follow and go, oh, okay, I can see mm. that links to that front brake. So I know that if I hit that one, but in businesses, there's all these levers, such as these brakes mm. and things everywhere, but you then it's just opaque about where it goes beyond that. So you can't yeah. actually tell. So they're doing these things all the time. They go, oh, I need to break that down. I need to uh, break that down, but then it doesn't, they don't know. So using data, they can actually, we can actually um, start to unpick it and understand and sort of trace some of those things down. Um, from some types of systems, but then there's another type of sort of philosophy and thinking as well, where there's more complicated systems where it's not so direct, mm -hmm. it's more sort of indirect. And then, but then you can still look at, okay, well, what's influencing the behavior through there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really connecting the dots. That's, that's the, yeah. that's the missing link. from. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> well, summarize, I'll need to write that one down. <laughs> <laughs> it's recorded you can always look we it should. up <laughs> well i think we, we used to say as well it's um 
with the senior executives um, the business was work, working with, it's really getting them on the same page. Yeah. Because they're all sitting there going, we need to improve. We're going to do this. They've got a whole, everyone comes to them with these ideas, but they're mm-hmm. unfounded. They, they don't have any data to back it up. Uh, they can't make an informed decision. So um, to get everyone on the same page, you can pull all the data together and go, okay, here's and actually visualize what's actually happening. And they go, oh, I can now mm-hmm. understand but not just I understand, collectively as a team, we understand and we can take some of those ideas you had and go, yeah, it's a good idea, but it's not going to achieve the overall impact that we want. So collectively, we can park that one. And so you can whittle it down to the, the options that are really going to drive the most value. Yeah, yeah. And that clarity is so important and, and that, will, that will save them so much money. Well, it saves them. A, a simple example is if you... I mean, if you're going to save $10 million and you wait six months trying to do it, you've already lost $5 million. Mm. So it's not just about making the right decision about doing something to save that $10 million. It's about, well, the timeliness to actually execute that. Mm. And if yeah. they're going to spend 12 months, six, 12 months, sometimes even you know, some businesses, like it's two or three years before they actually make a decision on it, then mm. it's burning a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Hmm, interesting. I promised I would go back to culture because um, you've mentioned culture a couple of times today and yep. um, culture um, to me also not just reflects in your core your core values but also in the type of people that you take on board, that you uh, invite to join your, join your journey. So with your, again, with your engineering background, do you only hire engineers or what, what requirements do you have to grow your team? How does that work? Um, yeah, a, a, quite a few of our, our people are engineers. Um, however, I learned many years ago, uh, and it was some training that I, um, when I was working for BHP, they had where um, they really pointed out that having diversity with inside your team is so critical for making better and informed decisions. Um, a number of engineers, you put a whole lot of engineers together, um, especially if they're all uh, going back to Myers-Briggs, INTJs, mm-hmm. uh, they will make decisions very quickly because the, um, the I guess what the emotional um, benefit for them to actually make a decision sometimes outweighs the actual um, the actual decision. The actual decision, exactly. <laughs> so um, having a whole lot of people very like-minded to do that is um, uh, is, is actually counterproductive. Hmm. Uh, you make decisions, but it's a whole lot of horrible decisions. Um, you might get a few few good ones in there. Um, so what we we try and do, and, and you know, I've I set up the business. Uh, my um, co-founder um, Greer, she's not a, a an engineer. At all, she just comes from um, private equity, um, strategy consulting. And I think having that dynamic of going, well, I think about this way and then having someone else having that diversity to go, you know what, that's probably not the right way of doing it. Um, And the most frustrated times I have with her is that I go sit there and go, you're so right, but I don't want you to be right. But okay, (laughs) okay, that's not the way I want to go. I really want to do this, but uh, I get what you're saying. And yes, we're going to do that now. So yeah. Um, having that uh, diversity in there. So um, for us and what we look for in our 
is this. I think the one thing that sort of really um, has risen to the top is, is what we call like grit. Um, someone with a bit of grit, someone who can deal with, we sort of think that life throws a whole lot of challenges your way. Um, and it's not just talking about in, in business, um, but just general life and how you actually deal with that will, will put you in good stead to how you actually can um, succeed with inside um, a business environment or with inside a company. So, and, um, and why, why is that important to you and, in, and for your business? It's important for our business so that we can be agile. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, we work with clients and we work really closely with clients and, you know, sometimes they might be having a bad day. Um, they might be under a huge amount of stress to deliver something and they'll push a lot of that stuff onto, onto us. So if we can stay there and be comfortable going, you know what, you know, this is, yeah, it's pretty intense and stressful environment or negotiating a, you know, multi-billion dollar, um, contract. There's a huge number, huge amount of focus in there, but we can put into respect, into perspective about, um, yeah, this is it's quite stressful, but you know, I was once thrown in jail, well, I was thrown in jail in, in Russia back mm. 20 years ago. I went, that was a pretty stressful environment, but in comparison to this, you know, it's not that bad and I'm still <laughs> going to go home. I'm going to be safe. Like it's, there might be, you know, it might, might hurt my ego. It might uh, hurt some future yeah. careers if I don't um, get it right, but it's, um, it's not a life or death um, yeah. situation. So I think, and it just, I, I found it, it enables, it found a more rounded sort of, sort of people um, that we like, generally like working with as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not so, um, I guess, precious about some things. Mm. So how do you do that? Because you mentioned grit, you mentioned resilience, and you mentioned um, the ability to put things in perspective. Uh, I'm sure there's a beautiful English word for it that I completely forgot about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, all those those things um, together. So how is that for you? Because running a business or being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, like they say in the US, um, running a business is not just going from positive to positive to positive experience. You you already said, like, you know, as entrepreneurs, we need to learn to fail and learn from our failings. Um, how did you how did you do that? Not not the, the data analysis and the reverse engineering, but it's like what was your biggest struggle in building this business and how did you get out of that? Um, a series of biggest struggles because, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't think you're running a business is never, never one. It's, it's going from once, I think it's, I think someone might have said this to me one time. It's, it's like you're just consistently going from one thing to the next and just trying to master that little, little like become a, well, not really a master, but becoming a significantly better in one little area. So it might be, okay, dealing with your finances of the business and dealing with accounting um, and getting that right or to, okay, now we need to hire people. So it's moving mm. on to that. Um, I think the way that I've sort of got over that is just by taking some little bite-sized things that I can just go, yes, I can master that and then get some improvement. Because if everything's failing, you're never going to have the motivation to, to continue. But if you can have some little wins along the way, 
um, we go, yeah, okay, we got that. We set that up now. Now we can move on to something else and go, okay, and just create that space to then have time to do other things um, and sort of fix things along the way and, and better things along the way um, has been the way that I've found that we've been able to, to get there. Hmm. But in terms of the biggest struggle, it's, I think there's heaps of struggles along the way, like everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> dealing with clients, uh, dealing with um, employees, um, dealing with, um, you know, just cash flow um, and, you know, just everything in between is, it's, it's not a walk in the park, definitely. Mm. Definitely not. And how do you, how do you find that, that space? You said you need to have some, some space to um, put things in perspective. You need space because a lot of people that I talk with that are, um, and as you know, as an accelerator coach, I used to work a lot with people that were in between that sort of 250 to a million dollar US kind of businesses. And I find that when people are in that sort of stage, it's a lot of head down, bum up, just work, grind. We need grit. We need grind. We need, just need to keep going. So what changed for you that you were able to sit back and reflect and say, okay, hang on, I just need to make time to look forward and I need to make time to see what's going on and what's happening. Oh, well, number one is having a great coach. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, but again, it's, they're putting in perspective with some other sort of entrepreneurs as well. So I was very lucky through um, the entrepreneur organization to uh, meet up frequently with, with other business owners and you can get really into the detail and go, well, what's working well, what's not working well. And you, while you think, oh my God, I'm a massive failure. And I think a lot of, um, a lot of entrepreneurs have that imposter syndrome, like, oh, mm-hmm. like, I don't think this is where, like, I'm not there yet, but oh, like, why is this, why it's either working well or not working well. And then you can actually compare that or just listen to other entrepreneurs and go, oh, they're doing the same thing. Actually, that's not, mm. it's, it, it's okay that it's not going perfectly because I think a lot of the stuff that's, that's out there, we're constantly bombarded. When you, and, and also when you tell people, um, when people tell you how things are going, it's always, oh yeah, things are going really well. Like, mm, yeah. Business is growing, business is booming. Like everyone wants, people want to buy in, you know, from a sales perspective, they don't want to buy into an organization that's you know, not doing well or got some issues. Um, yeah. That's a risk to that organization. Yeah. But uh, so everyone tells you, you know, things are all going well. Um, so by the second one is you're speaking with those other people, but then also taking that that time and set, set aside some time, you know, each be it each week or each month, uh, definitely each month, um, and just having that time to sort of debrief about the business and go, okay, mm-hmm. how are things going? Where's this going? Let's put that in perspective, and how's this? How are we going? in terms of tracking towards our goals. And I found that just resets everything. It sort of puts some of these things, um, some of those stresses away and go, actually, it's not too bad. Or actually, that was really good. We should really celebrate that. Because mm. um, we've, been, we've been trying to get there for the last you know, five years and we finally got there. Not, and let's not just let that sit aside. Let's just actually really celebrate that and go, yes, we've actually got there. Yeah. Yeah, and that's an enormous learning as well. That is, you know, the fact that you 
realize that you've made success and you've you've achieved a goal and that you take time to celebrate rather yeah. than just oh yeah next because we're so yeah. focused <laughs> <laughs> yeah things, things are good but oh they're not that good and you go, actually they're yeah. pretty good yeah it's just you, there's always a target that you want to get to just a little bit more yeah or something exactly. just a little bit more interesting mm. yeah mm. maybe your interest changes over over time where you go okay that used to be really interesting five years ago and i thought this would be really interesting but i've grown in that five years and now that's really interesting so it's um yeah. well, you, was, grow, you grow with your goals i was very lucky many years ago when i was because um, when I was working over in Sweden, I'd travel back. I worked there a couple of times over three years um, and always flew back and forth to, to Australia. And I'd stop in the UK and had a family friend there that I'd catch up with and, and have, um, have a meal with quite, quite frequently. And um, so those who have been to the UK, you've probably heard of, uh, or you've probably eaten, eaten at uh, Pret-a-Manger, um, Pret, it's always <laughs> called there. Um, so this guy actually founded it. Um, and so we'd sit down and have coffee or go have a meal somewhere. And um, I was very lucky he took a, took a shine to me. And, uh, and I was explaining one day, I was like, oh, like, I've done all this stuff, but it seems good. But now it seems like that interest has gone somewhere else. And he explained, he said, he said Simon, life is like a, a stepladder. I said, every step you take on it, your horizon changes. Mm. And you get a different view of things. And, I was, and you know, that was... You know, 25 years ago or 20 something years ago and uh that's really stayed with me and going actually well yeah it's it is going to change yeah as as we learn more things or as we see more things as we experience more things those i am gonna my interests are going to change um and my point of view on things are going to change as well and that's okay yeah that's that's a great learning that's mm. a, that's, a, that's one of those one-liners that every entrepreneur should have on their mirror like when they get ready in the morning it's like with every step you take on the leather your your horizon will change so it's um and it takes me back to your rocket science days because you know when you go up into space <laughs> it's an even bigger bigger horizon like the sky's the limit literally so yeah. um so speaking of Sweden, you did mention that you were a local celebrity there and that you actually made it to the newspapers a couple of times. So, but you didn't tell oh, me why. So, I didn't. So uh, when I was over there, that I grew up here playing rugby and I love playing rugby. And uh, one of the times when I was over there, I saw in the middle of winter, I saw these rugby, um, rugby posts sticking out of a field. And the next time I went over there it was summer. So I wrote, wrote to this club and said... Uh, my very bad Swedish and said, oh, I'm Australian. I love to play. So uh, managed to play a season uh, with their um, so um, team called all the town called Venice boy, um, which is just North on uh, Gothenburg, mm -hmm. um, about an hour and a bit North of there and played a season there. And the local uh, newspaper ran a few stories because we actually won the whole Swedish championship. Um, for that year so and it was 30 years since I um, last won it so uh, yeah. yeah it's because but, of the Australian <laughs> uh, I think it was actually I think it was because there was a couple of Australians and um, Pacific Islanders and, and Kiwis and stuff in there so we were stacked with a lot of with a lot of talent uh, which was great but it was a, a fantastic way to see the country we got to travel across because um, every 
every uh, every Saturday would would get on the, the team bus, travel sometimes across to Stockholm, which is a four hour trip, um, play a game there, and then um, travel back on the bus. It's uh, depending how long the bus trip was, it, it got a bit messy, but uh, it was a bit fun with the with the beers. So um, it was a great way to get around, and we'd always have lunch with the the team as well that we just played with. So um, it was a, a really great way. It was another learning I found as well that. Now, sport really connects a lot of people um, across different cultures, uh, across different countries, and uh, it's an amazing thing. So um, I've found out that you know, if ever going to live anywhere somewhere else, it's just go straight to the, the local um, local club of whatever sort mm. of sport you like playing, uh, from darts through to you know, rally car or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be rugby, but um, yeah, it's an amazing sort of way to connect yeah. with people. Yeah, connect with people. So speaking of connecting, how can people connect with you? Because we haven't even mentioned your business name. It's it's changed a little bit. It's Acquire Insights. Yes. That's your consulting business. And yep. then you have uh, the contractmanager.com. That is one of your products. And yep. contractpulse.com is one of your products as well. And then Tracy, is that how I say That's it? That's Tracy, yes. Tracy, T-R-A-A-C-I.com. Um, what's the best way to get in touch with you? If people, you know, want to have a chat with a real rocket scientist or have a chat <laughs> about, hey, my business needs data engineering, needs data analysis. Sure. Um, probably the easiest way is to um, contact me on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, you can search for the reason why there's a David in there. So you're absolutely right. Simon David Thompson. Yep. Um, there's only one of them. Um, so if you search for that on, on LinkedIn, you'll come across me. So you can either message me directly through there, um, through our website, acquireinsights.com.au. Um, you'll find our contact details on that website down, down the bottom. So you can reach out through there as well. And you um, pretty much you'll come directly through to me. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been interesting. And, and I, I love I love how you've connected your history and experience as an engineer to reverse engineer a product and a service for organizations to help them manage their risks and their, their in contracts and procurement and just be able to make data-driven decisions. And um, I love that. So Thank you for your service to the world. Thank <laughs> you so much, Ivanka. It's thank been you for this time. fantastic. Uh, please stay on so we can have a little chat offline, but I'm going to end the stream now. And um, I'll be back next week, Thursday, with another LinkedIn Live, out-of-service LinkedIn Live. And it will be about business compliance, risk management, and the power of asking the right questions. So I'll see you all next week, and I'll t- chat to you later, Simon.